1: our world on KCAA, 106.5 FM Los Angeles,
2: 102.3
4: FM Riverside,
3: and 105.0 AM Palm
4: Springs. Hey everybody, we've got a great show on deck for you guys today. We're being joined by Dr. Angela Hattery and Dr. Earl Smith. And today we're going to be talking true crime we're going to be discussing a, a lot of areas that I don't really think Julie that we pay enough attention to we're going to be talk- you know we're going to be talking to our experts in areas related to race gender violence and my specialty as I work in the field the criminal justice system and the perhaps the disparity in crime So let's just go ahead and introduce or bring our guest on, Dr. Hattery and Dr. Smith. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the House of Mystery Radio. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So guys, let's jump right into it. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourselves, you know, ladies first, and kind of what brought you here.
0: Thank you. So my name is Angie Hattery, or Angela Hattery, and I'm the director of the Women and Gender Studies Program at George Mason University, way out in Fairfax, Virginia. And for a number of years, along with Dr. Smith, we've been studying racial disparities and gender disparities in the criminal justice system. And, you know, out of all of that work, we decided that there was a little bit of a gap in the way that people were talking about race in the criminal justice system that we thought we could fill. So we put some research together and uh, published a book, uh, Policing Black Bodies, which came out in December.
4: So, I mean, l- well, let's go back. I mean, you just said a lot there. Um, l- let's go back to this. <laughs> I mean, uh, tell us the backstory on this, because it sounds like there's more to this.
0: More to the book, sure. So like many of your um, listeners and viewers, um, we were also watching all kinds of events take place over the last few years um, in which you know, unarmed black men were being shot by the police, protests were happening in the street, the Black Lives Matters movement mm-hmm. was going on, all of that. And uh, we realized that in all of the commentary, especially on cable news and Twitter and Facebook, um, people were ignoring what, was re- what, what, what it was all really about, which was a history of racial tensions in a variety of communities. And so we thought, aha, that's, you know, that's the niche that we can add some analysis to, to help people have a better understanding of what's actually going
3: on.
4: It, true, and, and I agree. Um, Dr. Er, Earl, what was, what was your take on this b- before we jump into the topic deeply?
2: Um, I've been studying uh, issues of uh, criminology for a long time, and I worked previously out in Pullman at Washington State University, Mm -hmm. and I spent four or five years uh, teaching and doing administrative work at Pacific Lutheran University. so I know a little bit about Washington State. I used to take my students down to Walla Walla, um, those sort of uh, safe visits that I don't know if they still do that down there. Um, but issues of crime has always been uh, important to me in my teaching, in my research. And when we started talking about this book, Policing Black Bodies, we wanted to ask a several questions, but we wanted to ask the question, what could we tell the prospective readers that's new? Um, as Professor Hattery said, people probably watched the TV screen uh, if they read newspapers. They knew about Trayvon Martin, uh, Philando Castile, Mike Brown. They probably knew about the disturbances or riots in Baltimore but they probably didn't know much more than that and so this book tells the much more than that story.
4: You know I, I have to agree with you um, just being an average Joe doing a radio show I, I have to admit that as a society we get probably 90 percent of our news through visual media or you know your, your major networks so whatever they cover is what we believe, and that's what we base our social view on.
3: I think I would completely agree with you, Al, because, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, up until last year, guys, I lived in the UK, uh, and even now I, I live in Cyprus. So the information that many people obtain, and I've been in social care for, for many years, working with people in a, in, in a way to affect change, People believe what they, what they see on the television, and they don't understand the intricacies and the complexities around culture and the disparity of treatment of different cultures. So I think introducing kind of some of that history and, and those accounts is, is absolutely imperative.
2: I'm, I'm glad you said
1: that. Um, I'm going to throw out a name
2: before we get any further. And it's Stephen Clark,
3: mm-hmm.
2: or Stephen Clark. Yeah. And you folks might know about Stephen Clark or Stephen Clark.
4: That's most I... recent. Um, that's actually a, a much more recent case. Um, why don't Why don't you tell us? So before?
2: recent. So, so recent that it was, I think, Sunday Sunday night. Um, This 20-something young man was shot, black, unarmed young man was shot and killed by the Sacramento, California, Police Department. And the reason why I threw out his name is because when this happened, we checked every major news outlet out there, the ones that you previously mentioned most people get their news from. And not one had covered this story. And it, so it becomes a Would I be like writing
3: another... me? I haven't seen this on the news, but would I be writing thinking that Stefan's story replicates and I wouldn't know the name of the gentleman and that's the point I I'm guessing here, is that this very similar in a similar incident happened some years ago very similar, that was very much broadcast, because I remember it being on on the major television channels in the UK, but I wouldn't know, unless I'd researched it, which I obviously did before this interview, about Stefan. So has there been a shift, do you think, in terms of the reporting of these? And
0: you're probably talking about Trayvon Martin, Mm -hmm. and Okay. You know, his name is a household name in, in the United States, but not necessarily in the UK or anywhere else. And I think that, you know, that's exactly the point um, all of you are making, is that the point of the book was, was you know, a lot of the instances really came from watching riot, race riots that took place in Baltimore after the murder of Freddie Gray. And as we watched all that accounting on cable news, it was quite obvious that it was about race, But that was the last thing that anybody was talking about. So people were talking about, you know, why are black people walking in the street? Why are high school kids coming out of school and, you know, you know, protesting in the street? Why are those things happening? Even white analysts who said, you know, why did the protesters burn the CVS, which is the only store in the community? And our question was, why aren't you asking why is there only one store in the community? You're asking the wrong question. And you're not focusing on the right thing. And, you know, Stephen Clark's murder um, will follow many of the same patterns. Instead of Skittles and IT, it was a cell phone. Um, and, that, and that's really what we try to do in our analysis. So You're, you're exactly right.
4: So l- let me ask this, though. L- let, me, let me back us up just a little bit. In, in today's society, I mean, we're inundated with horrible Horrible events. I mean, we've got riots everywhere going on. We've got murder everywhere that's going on. Is it not possible that this one is simply one voice in a crowd? Um,
2: uh, no. I'm gonna say no. And here's why. Uh, this is a systemic pattern of the killing of unarmed black men mm-hmm. because you, you probably wouldn't have a, a program asking uh, experts to come on the program to talk about the killing of unarmed white men. It would never happen and it would never happen because that atrocity is rare. It's very, very, very rare. It's not systemic. And white, young white men do get killed by the police but the pattern is not there and 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 the point we make in this book in terms of delving new information is that this is a systemic pattern and i i said well let me throw out one name we have a database lots of people have database but we have a database that we use to write that particular chapter and that's 60 70 names Mm -hmm. um so we know that something is going on here in terms of the relationship of the police to the African-American community. That's, that's clear to us, and that's why we put together this book. But we go, we go well beyond uh, that important topic. Um, and so we have eight or nine chapters where we talk about the various ways that policing in the broader sense of the term, is imposed on the African-American community. And we don't think there's any other book out there that addresses this topic in such a wide, uh, uh, as wide as we do.
3: Uh, what were the challenges in, in putting your book together? Because I mean, I'm just writing um, a book now. I'm a medium, and I'm just writing a book about my experiences and finding that I'm challenging in, in almost every paragraph um, and trying to tread carefully but, but also keep the book real. Um, as I write, ha- what were the challenges that, that you guys had in, in putting the book together?
0: Well, congratulations on writing a book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's
3: a lot of work. <laughs>
0: And and it's hard. I, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, many. There were a lot of challenges. I think I'll just point out, you know, three. Um, One challenge was, as we were writing the book, the summer of 2016, when we were, we were drafting the book and really writing it out. um, In one week in the summer of 2016, the week of July 4th, um, there were, I believe, three black unarmed black men shot or killed by the police. Um, and then there was a black shooter who shot a number of police officers in Dallas, Texas. And it, so it was, a, it was exploding while we were literally writing that chapter. And one of the challenges was when do you stop? When do you say, okay, this phenomenon is going to continue, but I need to, you know, get the book into print? So one challenge is when you're writing about something that's contemporary, you know, when do, when do you stop and say, if there's more cases, you know, we'll deal with that in the next book? Mm. Um I think another challenge was um, how do you talk about something that's potentially very provocative? How do you um, how do you be honest about what's happening in a way that people who have never thought about it before, or think differently, or see different kinds of news, consume different kinds of media, um, are going to disagree with you? So the example that you know Dr. Smith gave about. Uh, white men are shot by the police and if your lens is is then to constantly question our argument that black bodies are policed differently how do you write that in a way that people who might be inclined to have never thought about it or see the world that way how can they hear that um i think
3: you know that's a that's another big challenge um because it's and, and like something we don't know or understand we tend to put our wall up don't we so you have to kind of get through that and help yeah. people try and it without telling them what to think. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and then I think the third challenge that most authors face is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? You know, where, where do you set the boundaries? And we're already, I think, you know, Earl can talk about it. We're already talking about if the book comes out in another edition, what's the next chapter going to be? Because we're already thinking about, you know, other ways that black bodies are policed. Um, yeah. So I think at least those are three of the challenges.
2: That came up, and and you may have more, Dr. Smith. Well, uh, a fourth challenge is for for us as, as scientists, objectivity. Uh, right. Uh, we're well aware that police police are also killed by citizens, mm. but we make it clear up front, very upfront in the book, that we're talking about essentially state-sponsored violence. Um, We're not talking about the randomness of of what happened in Dallas, for example. Uh, We're talking about something that seems to be very, very calculated. And one of the ways we can come to that conclusion is for every city that we looked at, Cleveland, uh, Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, for every city that we looked at, that came under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice after every disturbance, after several of the shootings, etc. every last one of those cities was hit uh, with a directive from the Department of Justice to clean up their policies. Um, the various policies that governed their department were in disarray. Um, so that just told us that you know, something was going on in these departments. And then you have that uh, sort of folk folklore of the thin blue line where police people stick together. And this comes up just this week with the officer in Minneapolis who shot that woman from Australia. Uh, and none of the fellow officers would come forward to testify. Uh, so we, we think we're we're on to something.
4: Now you mentioned objectivity, though, and and I don't mean this in a disrespectful manner, but but given your your subject of your book, how do you avoid confirmation bias? Oh, that's
0: a, yeah, that's a go, go ahead. ahead. Okay. No, um, I think that that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I teach a methods course every semester, and so I'm constantly talking with my students about how you have to let the data reveal themselves and take it where it goes. And I think, you know, that's clearly what we had to do in this case. And this is part of, you know, part of the way that we try to make the argument is using numbers and using data. Um, and for some people, you know, they can still put that wall up and the numbers don't, um, aren't convincing, um, but. You know, as social scientists, that's clearly the tact that we're taking is amassing an empirical argument um, to be able to make a case.
4: Because you know, at, speaking as a member of the law enforcement community, and in preparation for this this interview, this is very challenging for me. Um, because you're right, I, I, I'm going to concede that that to you, Angela. You know, it it is our natural inclination to throw up those walls. Oh my god, you know, they're they're attacking my profession. And I'm just an average Joe. I don't see race and crime. But that that is such it, well, you know, and, and that is such a delicate area. Um I want to wait, feel wait, wait, that it's time. okay. Go go ahead, Earl.
2: Um, You say you don't see race in crime, and uh, that's part of what we address in the book when we get to our uh, explanation of the theoretical apparatus that guides the research. And I'll let Professor Hattie speak to that in a moment. But race is is in crime in so many specific ways, it's unbelievable. uh, a guy named David Baldus, a legal scholar, uh, did a major study, I don't know, 1986, that just hasn't been surpassed yet. And he showed uh, the race of the victim determines the passing of the punishment. The race of the victim determines hmm. how the perpetrator is punished. Once you start looking at those kinds of data, once you look at the data on sentencing, once you look at the uh, issue of powder cocaine and crack cocaine, uh, how the sentencing is meted out, all, and once you look at the numbers of people who are actually incarcerated, all of that, and once you look at the, the, the demographics of all those police departments, that we talk about in terms of Baltimore, Ferguson, Chicago, Cleveland, etc. Sure. All of that is heavily, heavily built around issues of race. Absolutely. You walk into a jailhouse, you're going to see black prisoners. I, you go up into yes, Wisconsin, where black people don't live, you're going to see black prisoners. Um, so race is inside of the criminal justice system thick.
4: And, and you know what, Earl, I'm with you, because the, the last few years of my career in law enforcement, I have worked, I, right now I, I am serving as a shift lieutenant in a correctional facility. Currently, mm-hmm. I have 921, as of this morning, 921 inmates, 62% of which okay. are black but we're talking about initially and I wanted to move on to this you know to to our point as the criminal justice system as a second part of the interview initially showing up as a deputy to a crime scene I don't control the race of the perpetrator or the victim I'm simply coming to a call and um, unless I am misinterpreting that is where you're concentrating a a lot of your book material is am I shooting a black unarmed citizen or am I approaching a crime scene?
0: So here's my question Um, and this is fascinating this is the the dialogue we had hoped to start with the book right Um, when we look at the data on just taking as an example the shooting of unarmed black men, there's not necessarily a crime taking place. Right?
4: We're we're responding to something.
2: Not not, not with Stephon Clark. I mean, he was just in his backyard from what we can tell. Uh, Not with Castile, who was simply getting the the paperwork that the officer was asking for mm-hmm. and, you know it is you know a lot of these issues don't in fact entail a crime. Um, but when you show up at the crime scene you don't see black or white, you see a crime scene. But when these officers are interviewed, the first thing they tell the uh whoever they're talking to is, the, the, the legal people, is I saw a big black man. So, and, and, and I was afraid of him. And I thought he was going to kill me. So.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: You go back to Mike Brown in Ferguson who was shot and on TV. We could see his, his body laid in the street for about five hours. Uh, the officer who shot him said just that. He was just this big black guy. And, oh my gosh. I it for my life. Then when the, we look at the data, the officer is the same size as the, his Mike Brown. Mm. So we're not psychologists, but Something is triggered in many of these offices. The woman in Oklahoma that, that killed the gentleman right by right by his car. Terrence uh, Kutcher. They, what's his name? Karen Kutcher. Yeah. These folks see something that doesn't exist in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how they talk about it in psychology, but this this, this victim look, looks huge <laughs> and big. But these people are
3: not, that, not that, They're not. Oh, sorry. I has that comparison this. been made to 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 white individuals as well? When have you studied the reaction of officers when they attend the scene um, and report um, a large white person stood there and they think they're going to be shot? Have you have you? I'm I'm sure you have, but have you compared those kind of statistics and reactions of officers?
2: No, I, I I don't remember ever reading that
1: an officer,
2: white or black, whoever whoever they are and, and the other point we need to make is uh, several of the shootings were by non white officers. But, but are we talking about
3: reported are we talking about instances that have been reported in the press or are we talking about a research study that has expanded past that point and and is as interviewed or has had the accounts of officers as they've attended the scene of, of any crime, regardless of the colour. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not falling on one side of this argument or the other. I'm just trying to think from a research perspective, has the same parameters been put on that research to white um, okay. individuals involved in crime? So it's not just reporting well, it's a in the press. It. it will be about reactions of individuals across the states um, to a crime, observing from... Yes, yeah, that's a great...
2: That's a, sorry.
0: Okay, answer go ahead. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and what, there are actually a number, of, quite a lot of, of studies. Most of them are done by psychologists. Um, yeah. Who uh, often it's an experiment where you're showing people images and asking them to react to those images yeah. Um, but I think one of the most interesting studies, and they all, you know, they, they all kind of come out in a, with similar findings. Um, and there's a bunch, there's a variety of different ways that they're done, but they're mostly done by psychologists. Um, but another really interesting piece of research um, that we cite in the book was interviewing black and white citizens who have been pulled over um, by the police on a traffic stop. Mm. And what's really, really interesting about what that research showed was that when – so the, we use the same term that the researchers use. They use the term legitimate, traffic stop, and efficient expedition. And they argue that when the stop is legitimate, so someone has run a red light, is, you know, way over the sea limit, is done something that any of us would consider a traffic violation, um, Black and white motorists experience the stop pretty much exactly the same way. There's no racial bias in terms of who's pulled over, and there's no racial bias experienced in the stop itself. When black and white drivers are are interviewed about what they the researchers call fishing expeditions. So people are pulled over for something that's, you know, not some sort of clear crime or a clear Serious traffic violation, like you know, a tail light or a tag or something that's very insignificant. Um, that's where racial bias shows up. And in those cases, um, and to use your term, where there's not a clear crime taking place, not only are blacks far more likely to be pulled over, but they're far more likely to experience it as a stop gone wrong. And so, that research and it, it, with interviews with a thousand citizens. Citizens about their experiences with traffic stops um, has been used by us and other people to help explain some of the cases that we've been talking about: Philando Castile in Minneapolis, Terrence Cutcher in, Kutcher in um, Oklahoma. Um, that those were stops that fall into the category of traffic, of uh, I'm sorry, fishing expedition, rather than sort of legitimate, um, legitimate stops. So I would imagine. I mean, I'd love to hear the perspective of you know, of an officer, but I would imagine if you're only pulling people over who should be pulled over, you might not see racial bias because drivers don't see it either when it's legitimate. It's when they're illegitimate, um, kind of unfounded, like I'm looking for you because you're driving in a place I don't expect you to be or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's when you see the racial bias pop out.
2: And those those studies there's, there's a lot of those studies like that. Um, to answer back to the other question, uh, when we talk about the size of the perpetrator, uh, that data that we use comes right from the, uh, uh, what do you call them? The officers. Doctors. Yeah, who are telling their story as to why they pulled the trigger. So it's not just from USA Today or the New York Times.
3: Oh no, well, I wasn't. I wasn't implying that. I guess what I was. What I was saying. It was answered in a fantastically by Angela. It was. It was kind of that. That perception of a crime scene and the moment that you have to react to make a decision. Your perception, and then later how you relay what was going on at the time. Has has studies been undertaken to look at the individual perceptions? Whether that person in front of an officer is white, black, it it. it is their reaction the same, or is there a, a, an absolute research study that says if that person in front of you is black, you're more likely to depict them in a menacing way than if a white person was in yes, yes, you? Yes, 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 yes. And, it, yes, yes. and those cool. studies have been done with
0: a variety of different types of samples, right? So yeah. they're community-based studies, they're college samples, they're kind of all over the map and they keep getting replicated in the same way. And, and I think you know, to Earl's point earlier, um, it's not just white people who also perceive who perceive black people as perhaps bigger or scarier um, or yeah. someone they're less inclined to want to talk to. Many black participants in these studies also carry those same stereotypes, right? Um. So that helps, uh, helps, helps us understand why, some of the police shootings are police shootings by black officers, right? They're, they've they've been trained in the same ways.
4: So, Angela, would, would uh, it be fair that to? That s- that I'm sorry, Earl, go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to give you a name uh, of an officer, a black officer in Gaston County, North Carolina, who gave an interview. He lives right outside of Charlotte, and from his perspective, he's an officer, he's an African American officer, he's proud to be a police person, and in his interview, if it's, if the data is correct, he says there is a clear fear, F-E-A-R, of black men. I mean, this is an officer who works with other officers in a police department in North Carolina, he says, from his time on the force, he's come to the conclusion that there's a fear, a huge fear of black men. And when I read this, I think about other kinds of studies that are done by communication scholars uh, who, who show images around to the students in their classrooms. And we come away with this notion, or the studies about the elevators, when when black men are on the elevator and whites get on the elevator, uh, the kinds of body language that changes, and depending on what they're wearing, one day they're wearing a suit and a tie and carrying a briefcase, the next day they're wearing a jumpsuit and a hoodie. Um, I mean, these studies are there, and they keep telling us the same thing over and over and over. I mean, right here on our campus, when you talk to students in class, black students and white students, white students will say, I did this and I wasn't pulled over, I was pulled over, I wasn't given a ticket. Black students said, I didn't do anything, but I got a ticket. Um, I just think the way we handle it in the book, and and we don't, I want to make this clear, we don't have a perspective as if we've come at it to... um, Say that we 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 hate police. We make it very clear that that's not our intent and that's not what we did. <clears throat> We're just taking a subject that I mean so alive trying to put the the dots together on this subject. Um, let me mention one more thing. We have a chapter in the book that nobody talks about. Nobody and it's about exoneration. Yes. And when you look at the data on exoneration, this helps clarify all the things that we've been talking about thus far. To be exonerated, you have to have been convicted of, of some crimes that you didn't commit. Um, and yet, the data that we have in this chapter shows that disproportionately, those men who are being exonerated... Using DNA evidence, are black men? So you say, well, why are they being stopped, arrested, convicted, sentenced thirty years, fifteen years, twenty years for crimes they didn't commit, and then you know, twenty-five years down the road, somebody finds, oh, you didn't do it, you didn't do the crime. Sorry, we better let you out of prison. Why are the, the why are these black men predominant number of? Prisoner being exonerated, if there isn't some kind of bias, systemic bias against who they are. Mm. That's deep. I mean, it that's is deep. It, it,
4: it is, and
2: since you're 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 law enforcement, you know you you know you want to get it right. The first thing you want to do is get it right. But in this case, it's as if the first thing you want to do. Is not be concerned with getting it right. Just lock somebody up.
3: I,
4: I, Let
2: them sit in some gall for 30, thirty years, and then say. And, and 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 prosecutors. We we address the issue of prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors don't have anybody they have to be accountable to. Who, who are they? Who are they accountable to?
4: Actually, they're Nobody. accountable to the public. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll I, I, I'll I'll disagree okay. with you there, okay. and, and we can agree okay. to disagree. And okay, th- that's okay. Yeah,
2: that's good.
4: Um, but look,
2: take, l- take a look at take a look at that chapter on exoneration. Uh, it is deep, um, and then we we have some chapters that address uh, transgender people, uh, women. So.
0: Angela, you want to say something about some of those chapters? Well, sure, I'm, or I'm not sure. We only have a few minutes left if there's something else you wanted to get in on the conversation. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, oh, no, that's okay.
4: That, that, that's okay. Uh, go ahead, Angela.
0: Well, I mean, we yeah, we talk about, um, and again, this is
1: moves it a little
0: bit outside of just the criminal justice system, but we look at, um, you know, you, you work in a prison, we looked at, the way that women and trans inmates are housed. I'm not sure, if you work in a men's prison or a
4: women's prison? I work in a correctional facility, so we have um, everything. Everything that comes in. Um, I am not a state, I'm a county. So we get everything. Oh, you're a county, Pre, okay. Pre-trial, sentenced, we, we get it all.
0: Mm. You have the hard work, then. That's especially <laughs> hard. Um, well, yeah, I mean, so you know, right? I don't know if you've housed um, trans inmates, yeah. um, but they present a really that complicated is, problem.
4: That is that is an interesting question, and, and, and here's why. Um, I don't mean to cut you off, but um, uh, Dr. Smith, he brought it up, and I was sitting here thinking this is a unique situation that we're facing. And l- let me give it to you from my side. a a transgender inmate we have to house them according to what they identify as however we also have to protect them from predators within the facility I mean let's be intellectually honest we have predators in our facility and I see it as a personal responsibility to protect them from the predators and at the same time honor their request to be housed according to their affiliation and that provides a very very unique problem
0: yeah it really does I agree and you know what we argue what we talk about in the book is that unique challenge and it seems like um in both reading different cases but also we did some interviews last summer um in a a state prison system um, it seems like it's really variable that some facilities really get it right. Other facilities really don't. Um, and so part of what we talk about in the book is how to come up with strategies that can, that can do exactly what you said um, without causing any undue stress to the inmate, uh, because at least in most of the cases we look at, often the protection means solitary confinement. Um, how can we come up with better
4: systems You're right for because- housing people? Because I don't want to do that to a person based simply on their affiliate. I, I really, as a corrections official, I don't want to place anybody in segregation if I don't have to.
0: And certainly not just because they have a particular identity, right? Correct. Yeah. So it it creates tremendous challenges. And, and that's one of the issues we talk about in that chapter. Um, you know, in the chapter on women, we also talk about unique the unique case that women present in the sense of when they come in to a, to a facility and they're pregnant and they're going to deliver that child during their period of incarceration, um, how, how can we come up with better strategies so, short of shackling them to the bed while they labor and deliver, something that I think, you know, at least women would be able to understand is not the best treatment for the mother or the child. How can we come up with better strategies that protect the public? Safety, um, protect the women, protect the child, you know. Um, and instead of a lot of situations where we're not doing that,
4: you know. And uh, speaking, uh, I am so glad you you said that. And and listen, guys, I, I am speaking now officially as a corrections lieutenant. I welcome, I welcome any advice that you would have on that because we do face that working in a pre-trial setting we have actually had women in that very situation as a young officer i have attended births of of women inmates and it has been exactly as you stated you know we shackled them to the bed and not by my you know not because i wanted to and not based on their race or their sex simply because that was policy But I'm also a human being and I see the humanity of these situations and I don't want to shackle anybody to a bed especially as they're giving birth and then I've had to witness the agony of a mother being separated from her newborn child simply because that is the system You know, we have to find yeah, and, and, a, a thank family you. member to, to take that child. And if no family member steps forward, guess where they go? Because this woman has got to go through know. her time. I don't want to see yeah. that. You know, I, I don't want to see that.
0: I, I appreciate your I appreciate perspective. And that's part of what we talk about in the book. We interviewed women who had that experience. And... You know, and again, it seems to vary tremendously by jurisdiction, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we interviewed women who weren't allowed to call the family member until they were back in the prison, which cut down on the amount of time the family member had to get there to get the child, before the baby, before it went into foster care. That just seems, seems like there's a better workaround than that, right? That we can protect public safety, we can deliver babies in a healthy way, we can, you know, provide the surrogate care for them, whether that's a family member or something else, in a way that is not so stressful, not so dehumanizing, um, and doesn't end up with so many kids in, in a foster care system where they're then set up, you know, far more likely to follow the path of their, mm-hmm. you know, of their parent, of their mom, in this case. Um, that's, that's exactly the issues that we try to take on the book. How can we do it better?
4: Right. And, and uh, again, um encompassing all because we're, we're beginning to run short on time uh, to encompass this yeah. entire conversation oops I didn't mean to bump the mic I apologize Um, uh, again you know going back to racial or gender or transgender issues or all these issues I, I've been in this business a little over 20 years and I would suggest, and and, and here's my suggestion, and and I know there's no chapter in the book that encompasses this, because, again, it's written from perspectives. And just being an average Joe that works in a jail now, if we would just simply get to know the inmates as people, not as races, not as gender, get to know them as people, which is what I spent a lot of my time doing, Know them as people, know them where they come from, and try to understand their unique socioeconomic backgrounds and get to know them as people. That would solve a lot of these problems. Let's bring it back to humanity, not race, not gender, or you know, you're a bad guy or you're a good guy. As an officer, Wearing grey and wearing a badge, I am one mistake away from being them, and that is how I see it. Wow. I think
3: also, wow. Kevin, is this is this understanding that you know is it's the way we treat people is the way then they treat other people, the way they treat their children, the way. So even if we're u- using that one example that you were helpfully giving answer about women. Um, and giving birth in prisons, you know, in the UK, everything will be done to try and support that in the prison system. And I think and that is so vital given that what we know about child development and attachment and the cycles of parenting styles that we see time and time again. And it's, it's it's no different. What you were saying, Kevin, about that, back down to humanity—how we treat people, every mm-hmm. single person—is replicated by them. There's, there's there's nothing more simple than that saying: so "If we smile, somebody smiles back." It, it's just crazy to think, but, but you know, yeah. segregate people, isn't yeah. it, in this way?
4: You know, uh, and over over my 20 some odd years, I, I'm sorry, Angel. I, I I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead.
0: Oh no, just because I have to walk to class. So if I could just make one last comment and then yes, can finish the conversation. Sure. Um, no, I think I think Kevin, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, part of what we also talk about in the book is the uniqueness of the American criminal justice system. That we lock up way, way more people disproportionate to the rest of the world. We lock up way, way more people for nonviolent offenses, for drug offenses. Um, and we you know, we have conditions that are not replicated certainly not in most other post-industrial
3: economies. So I think taking
4: an international view is another place we could think about how can we do this better.
3: Absolutely. I had watched the documentary about two weeks ago about how in America children who murder are given life sentences or can be given life sentences without parole. So a child of 10 or 12 who has committed murder, they may get the chance in their 20s to appeal, but once that appeal is done and dusted, that's it, they're there for life.
2: Mm-hmm. It
3: makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, but, but that's, that's the system.
1: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to
2: www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now.